I am honored to be here. So yeah, this just um, just just uh, this week, I think on Monday, I got the notice that this was published. Uh, Martin Brune is a clinician, a uh, psychiatrist, works a lot on oxytocin. I mean, he does clinical work with all kinds of patients, um, and but has done research on oxytocin as a bonding social facilitating hormone. And Wolf Schiefenhovel is someone many of you may know if you're into evolutionary childbearing. He's written works on childbearing, worked in New Guinea, and rides a motorcycle all over the place. He's older than I am. But more, I ride a bicycle. He's much more, you know, dangerous than I am. Uh, and he's a, um, Boy, he's an evolutionary biologist and physician as well. So they put together a, a symposium a few years ago, and uh, the chapter in the book is with Robin Bernstein. Many, I don't know if you know her. She's at uh, Boulder, Colorado, and I've known her since she was a PhD student doing non-human growth hormones and baboons and gorillas and things, but now she does all kinds of wonderful things. And she's working with the MRC group in Gambia now on um, what all the things they do. I think looking at hair analysis for all sorts of nutrients and hormonal cortisol, things like that. I'm not going to read all that, but we, we look at all the usual life history things in, the, in our chapter. So my talk is called Stunting Does Not Equal Malnutrition. Now, nutrition can cause stunting. I'm going to say that several times because some people yell at me. Because it's, 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 you can't imagine the emotional tie that many people in the field of human nutrition, especially the people who have been funded and published for decades on interventions to provide specific nutrients like vitamin A or zinc or iron or something else or provide water sanitation and hygiene or provide some sort of nutrition education. There's all sorts of interventions that public health epidemiology people have tried to improve what is according to the World Health Organization, according to the World Bank, according to almost every government agency in the world that takes money from those people, um, that the world's primary nutrition problem is stunting. And we're saying stunting does not equal malnutrition. In fact, my colleagues, who I'll introduce you to a bit later, have gone so far to say that nutrition almost has nothing to do with growth, as long as you're getting enough. Now, Every essential nutrient, like vitamin A or zinc or iron, was discovered by taking it out of the diet of some experimental animal, like a puppy dog or a monkey or people. In the old days, there were no ethics, so prisoners, military, you know, people, any people institutionalized, probably university undergraduates, were put on these dietary regimes without something in there. So, I mean, famous ones are, you know, the association of pellagra with niacin in prisoners in the south of the United States. They proved it. They gave them the normal diet the people in the factories <coughs> ate, and they got pellagra. And they gave them the diet that the prisoners ate, and they didn't get pellagra, because the prisoners ate better than the workers in the factories. And some prisoners, all the prisoners, will tell you. Prison's a good place to go if you want three squares a day, three meals a day. Okay, so if you take those essential nutrients out of the diet, or you starve people when they're infants, children, juveniles, adolescents, they stop growing. There's no doubt about that. But you'll see we have a, a different take on all these articles that are published that start with the sentence, there are 155 million stunted children in the world showing this is the biggest nutritional problem in the world. My guess is that 100 million of those, their short stature has nothing to do with food. It has to do with other factors that they are missing. They're not healthy. They're missing something, but it isn't food. It's 
social, economic, emotional factors that are interfering with their growth. Okay, let's start with another myth. We're the taller than we've ever been because you know we're so well fed, we're overfed, we're so well educated. Taller than we've ever been, 21st century Australians. About the same, 178 centimeters. About the same in the UK, USA, Russian Federation, all these countries, about the same average height. Doesn't matter what their political philosophy is. Uh, but in the past, we were actually taller. Neolithic and late Paleolithic humans, Homo sapiens, were 10% taller and 20% more massive than we are today. They're, you know, forfeitures. I'm talking about the women and the kids are 10% taller and more massive because they did a lot of physical activity. If you want to connect this with evolutionary medicine, I mean, that's the thing everybody, every, you know, pop evolutionary medicine book has out there, we have to live like foragers, maybe. But they were bigger. And, you know, the world was their oyster. There was plenty of stuff to eat. Our colleagues who work with Hadza foragers in um, Tanzania have shown that rarely do they have food shortages, especially famine. It, it's thought that you know people died of famine in, in, in the Paleolithic past. No, they, they really didn't. There's, it, it's a myth. So, but they're not tall. Hadza are not tall. Foragers alive today are not tall, but they are marginalized people. And that's what I'll get to a little bit later. Heights declined as the Neolithic transition took place, and people settled down, lived in their own waste and garbage and filth. People, you know, primates are the noisiest and dirtiest creatures in the forest, and people are the noisiest and dirtiest of all the primates. Just ride your bicycles around the countryside and see You know, as pe and people didn't know anything about sanitation, water quality, heights declined because of an increase in infections and because people put all their eggs in one food basket. You know, they were living on a much narrower diet than in the foraging past. And there were famines. That's where we get the famines, once people start horticulture and agriculture. And then you get state societies and social stratification, and that creates taller and shorter people associated with their social status, and that keeps going, and this guy's actually too tall. There were factory workers were not 171. In fact, uh, factory worker children were truly stunted. You know, um, not just stunting today, World Health Organization says stunting means that you are two standard deviations below the median of the World Health Organization growth charts two standard deviations below the median for your age and sex. So you're down at, you know, you're at below the, you're in the third percentile, way down there in terms of your height for age and whether you're a girl or a boy. And the factory children were like, to put this in, in numbers, 25, centimeters in some cases shorter than the um, than the upper middle classes in the UK in the 19th century 25 centimeters that's you know just huge so the tallest today by a few millimeters are the Dutch but the you know the Danes and the Swedes and the Norwegians and Northern Germans, just a few millimeters behind them. So 20 years old, 184 centimeters. Why have they gotten even taller than our Paleolithic ancestors in the past? And why were our Paleolithic ancestors so tall? Yeah, well, you have to get all those nutrients. You have to be loved. You have to be cared for. But you have to have some hope for the future. And Economists express hope in terms of this index, the Gini index. Signore Gini was an early 20th century statistician, economist, and fascist from Italy. And he developed the index in, in part to promote fascist 
philosophy, political philosophy at the time, but even evil people sometimes come up with something that's worthwhile. And what the Gini index shows is the amount of income spread or inequality. Perfect inequality means I have all the money. Well, actually, Jeff Bezos has all the money. <laughs> and the rest of us have nothing. That would be a Gini of one. Perfect inequality. And zero means we all are absolutely equal. Of course, there's no place on Earth that's one or zero. We're all in between. I think I have some Gini charts. So what I want to talk about really is inequality and its effects on height. Oh, here we go, in fact. We published a paper in the American Journal of Human Biology in 2017. And what you see here, this is, this is GNI, that's gross national income. PPP means in per person purchasing power. So that's really how much money do you have in your pocket? Per person purchasing power. It's, it's in US dollars. So a dollar in the United States buys you so much. A dollar in Sikkim, India, buys you maybe more or less, depending on the local economy. And that's, that's what that measures. And you can see that as per person purchasing power increases, Height is increasing. Actually, it's kind of stagnating down here at the lower end of per-person purchasing power. But as per-person purchasing power starts to really rise, you get a steep upward curve. The red line going down is the Gini index. And you can see it varies from about, lowest is down here, about 25 up to uh, one society way up there is near 70, but most clusters somewhere in the middle. And it's the best fitting line is this linear regression through all those red data points for the Gini. And you can see that the more unequal the society, so the higher you go on that scale, the shorter the people are. It's a little complicated because it's a positive relationship with per purchasing power. I could have inverted the scales. But the point is that it is a strong, statistically significant, and biologically significant relationship. Look at the distribution in height. These are heights from the non-communicable disease risk factor collaboration group out of UCL or somewhere in London. They've put together, this is 169 different societies data on young adults who were born in 1996. That's as recent as the database is. And uh, this was statistically massaged by people who do stats way beyond what I've ever imagined. So it's, it's pretty good, in other words, on average heights for these 169 different countries, mostly from demographic health surveys or national uh, anthropometric surveys. And look at the distribution in mean heights from as low as, this is for, this is for men, as, as low as 160 and as tall as I said is about 184. More than a 20 centimeter variation in height in living people today. It's just a huge range of variation. This is normal. Okay, that's for men, same thing for women. This is for women. Of course, on average, women are smaller. We also did um, an analysis of sexual dimorphism, and contrary to what I expected, or what do you expect? As inequality increases, would you expect men and women to be more different in height or more similar in height? As inequality increases, or flip it around, as equality increases, would you expect men and women to be more similar in height or different in height? What's that? More similar? As inequality, no, as equality, as equality increases, men and women would converge. Because equality should affect both sexes, right? That's what I expected too, and that's not what we found. And I had actually found that in some other analyses, much smaller from Guatemala, and I always made up a story you know, sample size or something else or statistical artifact. But as equality increases, 
men and women actually get more different in in the paper we published we used a slight variation of, of Ginny's original index. We used one that an economist named Wagstaff, apparently is a big shot in this field, uh, conditioned the Gini index on life expectation at birth. So it's called the Gini W. And uh, we like that better because it pulls in a real biological health, you know, life expectation at birth makes more sense biologically than just money. <coughs> There's always a problem combining money and biology. It's, it's not that simple. And uh, we, we, it didn't change the results, but it just made it a little more biologically meaningful. So, uh, I don't know. All these countries have the expected variability in height. Um, it's, it's a little bit amazing. OK, so we look at, can you see that? It's a normal bell-shaped curve, right? So that, that's a poor country. And then, you know, so let's say that's Guatemala. And then this is Netherlands. It's also a normal bell-shaped curve. It's just all shifted to the right. So you said this variability would be the same. Basically, that's what we find no matter where we look. The variability does not change. It's, it's the mean shifts. Um, only, the variability only changes where we have, you know, prolonged warfare. Um, the variability in Switzerland, for instance, used to have a long tail to the shorter stature because of iodine deficiency in the mountain regions. Once they iodized salt, it pulled that tail right up and the Swiss became the same bell-shaped curve as everyone else. So you see some of those if there is a true nutrient deficiency or some other nasty thing is happening, like a prolonged war or something, then you get a, a whole bunch more shorter people. Okay, so I have too many slides, so I'm trying to give you my you know, punchline right up front, and then we'll go into some of the minutia. Um, stature is a signal within a group. This is the Queen of Sheba meeting Solomon. I don't know all the backstory of this uh, painting. And uh, you can see the king, the most important person, the person with all the power, with the God-given right to be king, is taller than everyone else. I mean, there's some really short people in there who, it's hard to say, is that a child? Is that a, just a short adult? I mean, some of these people are clearly just short adults. This is an allegory, of course. It's a painting. It's not a photograph. But that's what the whole point is. People's social status is depicted in their height. So you can look at this painting. You don't have to be a you know, professional oxologist or a social biologist. You know what you're looking at right away, who's important and who isn't. Let's take it up a little further. Sir George Clive, the nephew or cousin to Robert Clive, who conquered India, started the East India Company in Kolkata, right? I'm going to take you to Kolkata on this tour right here. You know, uh, it, 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 it's still going on there. Colonialism is still going on in West Bengal and North Bengal. This is the immensely rich George Clive, who, who made his money in India as well. He did not come from aristocracy, but his wife did. That's their child, and that's their Indian maid. Anything about stature here? She's of higher social status than he is. Look at their heights. In the painting, he is leaning over so that he's not taller than she is. And of course, this is Sir Joshua Reynolds. Nothing in this painting is by accident. This is, you know, the, the best portrait painter, certainly of British history. Nothing's by accident. The child, the child is actually <coughs> only about 18 months old, seems to be much older. Seems to be much older. Yeah, so, but notice the Indian maid the shortest, and supporting the child. 
This is another allegory from colonial times. It's in a lot of the art that um, the most famous is a illustration, an engraving by Burke, showing that's called um, America and Asia supporting Britain. So there's a you know Greek goddess type Britain in the center who is you know just fair and beautiful and weak, and then much more muscular female figures lifting up Britain to show the dependence of the metropole on the colonies. And that's what you're seeing here as well. Reynolds is putting that in uh, to this painting. So stature always signals social status. And the maid is actually, if you move this over, <laughs> the maid is shorter in the picture than even the child. Less of her body shows. She may be taller. Okay. Big is dominant, whether it's body mass, total mass, or, or, or length. This is primate wisdom and, and other species as well. Are tall people dominant? Or are dominant people tall? What do you think? Say it louder. Both. You're absolutely right. It's both. The answer is both. There's a constant bio, social, cultural interplay between biology and, and social stuff. Not the Queen of Sheba meeting Solomon. This is, you know who this is? Felipe IV, King of Spain, and some of his ministers and friends. And he's towering above everyone. His father was not that tall. Why is he so tall? People's heights have varied. This is an analysis I did years ago with an undergraduate student of economics, because I, I didn't know anything about economics at the time. And what we did was we collected all the data we could find. It was kind of a systematic review of heights of people in Latin America. So that's everything from uh, Mr. Trump's wall on south. Okay, that's Latin America in our, in, in our review. Um, and what you find are foraging people here who actually get kind of taller, and then horticulturalists, but they're really independent groups. They're, they're, some of these, actually as a master's student, I worked on one of the sites in, in Ecuador on the coast. They were horticulturalists, but they were still doing a lot of foraging. And they're getting taller, and then you get intensive agriculture, so these are Toltecs, Aztecs, Maya, Inca, all these here. And these are, look how height, variation increases. The men up here are the elites, so these are skeletons from pyramids and elite burials, and the men down here are the people who are buried in the uh, rubbish middens or under the floors of houses, not in a tomb. And heights, the, the, we just fit this with uh, low S regression, uh, heights, these are all skeletal up to here, and then these are the living, starting here. Heights tend to decline as social, economic, and political systems become more and more stratified, and with colonization, and you know, 1500 is also the uh, arrival of the Spanish and then other European powers, and then you go into the 20th century, tremendous variation, always these guys up there are elites. This is from a long time ago. I wasn't <laughs> sensitive to those things back then. I would switch the colors and use green and orange or something. But all the ones in the circles are the elites. Okay, so here's our message. What are the determinants of adult body height? There's the classic interpretation. This is what I learned. This was what I wrote about until quite recently. The means depend on average living condition. The variances depend on individual conditions, so how you grew up. And what we call the target 
is your individual height maximum, which really translates into your genetic potential. Are you living up to your genetic potential? Um, <laughs> I have rubbished the idea of genetic potential as far back as 1999 in my book, Patterns of Human Growth. I said it's just a bad combination of words. Okay, and I'm going to rubbish it even more now and in the future. Okay, so <clears throat> these things are genetics, nutrition, health and hygiene, called wash, water, <clears throat> and sanitation, and hygiene. Those, of course, are influenced by wealth, socioeconomic circumstances, and your social strata and choice of partner. And we knew in, in, the, in the old days that there were interactions between those. So we, we knew that the taller of two sisters here in the UK would tend to marry above her father's social status. And the taller of two brothers, not necessarily the older, the taller of two brothers was more likely to go to university. That's part of the old classic model. We knew that parents made those kinds of investments differently in their children. But they're, and they're the biological children. So, you know, there's some genetics, but there's family dynamics and all sorts of things that are affecting how people grow. But we have a new interpretation. So the means are not just depending on the average living conditions, but are adaptive within a wide genetic frame, that 20 to 25 centimeters of normal variation in human height. Perfectly healthy, perfectly well-nourished, perfectly well-cared for, loved, and educated people, well, you know, clothed, never miss a meal, vary by 25 centimeters in height. Even in the Netherlands, one of my Dutch colleagues is not that tall, he's about this tall. But if you go to the airport, you know, go to Schiphol Airport, I'm a shrimp. I tell my students, go to the airport if you want to see social class differences in height. See who's getting on the planes and see who's sweeping the floor. And serving, do you want fries with that? at the airport. Big differences in height. Okay, variances are what we call community effects within the group. Social networks is really what we're saying. That who you interact with influences that and, it, and adjusts the variances within your sort of target height that you may be able to achieve. Yes, there's some genetic factor in height, but it's, it's not determined. Genetics doesn't determine height. It interacts in a multitude of complex ways with social, political, economic, and emotional environments in which we grow up. And the target is not your genetic potential determined at the moment of fertilization, but rather the relative optimum in the group. For instance, we've published an article showing that immigrants from usually lower socioeconomic countries to higher socioeconomic countries very quickly come to the optimum target of the recipient population. They, they move up more quickly than you can explain by any improvement in nutrition or health. They're in a new social network and a new kind of expectation. Genetics, nutrition, health, hygiene, these are only biological prerequisites, right? Take out that, take out that, or just by the luck of the draw, have short genes. I mean, there are certain genetic syndromes, uh, mutations, uh, diseases that cause short stature. And if you have any of those, yes, it's going to affect your height. But those are prerequisites for these more important factors that explain differences. The peer group, and we know this from some statistical modeling exercises of adjustment of height towards the average of the peers I just mentioned in migrants. And we know this also from non-human evidence that dominance and subordination influence how individuals grow. And the study I'm going to tell you about was done by uh, Houchard and colleagues who are part of the Clutton Brock group at Cambridge. 
And Clutton Brock's favorite animal, of course, are meerkats that sell us insurance and other things on television. And they wrote an article, it was in Nature, Strategic Growth Adjustments in Meerkats. Meerkats continue growing after their final social position within their society, within their social network. Meerkats are cooperative breeders, and by Clutton Brock's group's definition, uh, social, cooperative breeders, only one alpha male and female are producing offspring at any given time. And the alphas repress the reproductive hormones and growth of the less dominant individuals, their own half-brothers and half-sisters who will be helpers at the nest, but will not reproduce unless the alphas die, get eaten, or are displaced. What they did, I'm not going to go through all this, what they did in a nutshell, or an eggshell, really in an eggshell, was that the meerkats habituate to the humans very quickly. You know, when you see the pictures of Clutton and Brock's group and other researchers, the meerkats are sitting on their heads, on their shoulders. They put laboratory balances on the ground, and they put a few drops of water on them. This is in Namibia, water's a big deal. Right? And they train the meerkats to get up on the balance, and they can weigh them every day. They gave, and very, while they're still juveniles, it becomes clear who is more dominant to whom in terms of their social interactions, and who gives way you know, to a more dominant individual. They gave the less dominant littermates, so these are the same genetically brother sisters. They gave the less dominant littermates an extra half egg a week, hard-boiled egg, right? And weighed them. The ones getting more egg each week started to grow. The dominant animals reacted by growing even faster. But they were not getting more food. They eventually had to go out and find more food on their own. But because they know these animals as individuals and watch them you know, all day long when they're foraging, they knew that the dominant animals started growing before they started eating. Nutrition does not make you grow. We see this in all the nutrition intervention studies with humans. They give them nutrients, they give them education, they give them wash, and all the systematic reviews, including our own, have shown the increase in length, length is zero to negative. In other words, some studies, they give them more nutrients and they grow less. These are all poor people in rural areas and urban areas of lower income countries. One reason we were discussing last night was giving iron to kids makes them more susceptible to malaria. It, it, do, it improves their iron status, and that allows the malarial infection to, to spread in their bodies. They can become better hosts to the plasmodium. Okay, um, other studies have shown worse growth faltering even after the interventions. And the ones that have shown positive effects, they're all within measurement error. That's length or height. Wait, yeah, the kids get fatter, there's no doubt. Give them more calories, they get fatter. But they don't grow taller. What's going on? Okay, we think it's social status. Anyway. Um, the stimulated growth of the subordinate members is perceived as a social challenge, and the, <coughs> the challenged these are controls that were outside the study. The, the, the challengers got more food, they grew the most, but the challenged grew as well, is what they found. This is the best evidence we have of this kind of uh, social status jockeying for position effect on growth uh, in a controlled study. Okay, so it stimulates growth in those animals. Okay. So, let's go to India. I went to India for the first time in November. The, you know, the, the business reason 
uh, was to present a couple papers at a symposium organized at the Indian Statistical Institute in Kolkata. A colleague, Parasmani Dasgupta, was retiring and he, he had one final party symposium at things. So I went and arrived in Kolkata, stayed a few days, and this was across the street from our colonial era hotel. And these are, these are not poor people. You can see they're out shopping for the day. But clearly I am a outlier in India. Okay? Uh, they, they, I was taking pictures and one of them came up and said, take a picture with us. <laughs> so, we go to, we flew to Kolkata, but really our, our, the exciting part of our trip was travel up to Sikkim. You see it's between Nepal and Bhutan. The third highest peak of the Himalayas is within the borders of Sikkim. Sikkim is the newest state, I believe, of India. It was an independent kingdom, but the king was not a very, uh, I don't know how tall the king was, <laughs> but he, he lived more in the United States, I think, than in Sikkim, uh, and uh, he lost Sikkim to the, to the Indians and it's now an Indian state. But we crossed into Sikkim. We flew up to uh, Siliguri, which is, where's Siliguri here? Here's Siliguri right here. We flew from Kolkata here. That's about an hour's flight. And then just driving to Darjeeling is about uh, five hours, four and a half hours. <laughs> Roads get steep and narrow and lots of traffic. And then we went to Gezing, which is the second biggest town in uh, Sikkim. And we stayed there about six days. Notice, uh, you can talk more about this part of India, northeast India, over to Assam, Nagaland, Arunachal Pradesh, and Meghalaya, where you work, right? This is, wraps around Bangladesh, and the only way in there without crossing any borders is through this fairly narrow corridor in there. It's a very isolated region. All of this northeast region is very isolated. And I didn't know this until I actually got home. I said, people are short, but Sikkim, this is the northeast zone, all these states right here, they are the shortest average height, 162.22. This is men's height. And in Sikkim, 159.83. It's the shortest average height of, of all these regions that I'm showing you, right? So the north zone, 166 and a half. Uh, the east zone, 163. This zone, especially Sikkim, shortest average height for men. Not shortest, uh, not lowest weight. In fact, they would seem heavy for their height if you use something with the body mass index. I'll show you more about that. Similar for women. They're not the shortest of all states uh, for women at 151, but you know, there are some that are a bit shorter, but they're all within you know, millimeters of each other and much shorter than these other states. What's going on? They must be all you know, malnourished up there, right? Well, I went with Michael Hermanusen, who is a growth researcher. He's also a pediatrician. He was a clinical practicing pediatrician in uh, the north of Germany, not too far from the Danish border, uh, but he does a lot of growth research, has written books and many articles. He did a lot of hormonal research uh, earlier in his career. This is uh, Dr. Christian Scheffler, human biologist at University of Potsdam. And uh, we're all good friends and colleagues. So the three of us uh, met in Kolkata, and then we traveled together up to Sikkim. This is um, Binu Dorji, a PhD student at North um, Bengal University, and has done a growth study in that area. And he was our guide. He is from Sikkim. He is Limbu, one of the scheduled tribal Groups. I'll talk more about Limbu people. So, you know, it was great to have 
an anthropologist who is from the area and is, you know, limbo. Okay. While I was there, I got invited to the first gazing karate training comb championship. These two men were the senseis. They're from Nepal. And they were training students, mostly girls. It was a girls' school where this first championship was, because one of the teachers at the school is a karate student herself, and she organized this thing. And these are all sorts of people, the uh, um, deputy mayor of Gazing, other officials from the town administration, from the school, and again, I kind of stand out. Especially, look at these, the, the karate instructors. You know, they were not big men. They could tear me apart in two seconds. They did a little demonstration with each other, and I said, oh my god. And I took some karate when I was 17. I said, what they're doing, if they touched me, I would just fall apart. <laughs> um, but they're not very tall. Here is, oops, here, a little video of the Saturday's training. Ichi-ni san-shi. One, two, three. These are girls from this state school. This is not a private school. This is just a school that regular kids go to. I didn't measure them, but Binu did measure them. And you'll see some of this data later. Like 50% would be considered stunted. But I, we saw no anthropometric or clinical pediatric evidence that they were suffering. These girls. I'll show you some that were suffering in a bit. I, uh, my talk was called Indian Oxology in Transition, and I did talk about social networks. To put this in context, of course, that's you. You are a kid growing up. You're in a household of some sort. It doesn't have to be, you know, the... The, the, the Western uh, one mother, one father model. It can be any kind of extended family household, but you're in a household. That household has, you know, has extended families. The kids go to schools. They have social interactions with their uh, school community. Kids coming from all different sorts of families. Um, they, then they live in neighborhoods, and then they live in the larger communities. Um, so I'm just giving a very simplistic notion of what a social network is like and what some of the influences are. And this is just words. So a social network is membership between and within communities may set targets for adult height via contention for status. Height is a social signal, as we saw, and in human societies, height is positively correlated with social status, reproductive success, educational attainment, economic gains, upward social mobility, and political success. This is, it doesn't matter how tall or short you are. This goes for the group I work with, the Maya, who are the shortest non-pygmy people in the world. Taller Maya women have more babies than shorter Maya women. The tall tend to rise in SES, and the short tend to sink, and that was in my Patterns of Human Growth book in 1999, was the strap line I used. We know that social networks exist, of course. They're easy to... They can be measured. We know that there are all these connections with disease networks. So people who are obese tend to hang with people who are obese. And this is all related to uh, uh, insulin resistance and diabetes, but also asthma. But you know, we know there's social networks for the kind of music you listen to, for smoking, for all kinds of behaviors that have consequences on health and when you're growing up on your physical growth and development. And we know that underneath these social networks and disease networks are metabolic networks, and this is where the action is between genes, hormones, nutrients, and the factors that influence them, including emotional, psychological factors, social status, economics, all stress, all gets involved down here that can, you can connect these three layers. So, we have all these things, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not so good. People feel social pressure, kids, ethnocentrism. I have a 14-year-old at home right now, and you know, she's just 
glued to her phone and other social media, what are people thinking of her and saying to her? We have ethnocentrism, of course. We have poverty. Too many people live in poverty. Bank Credit Suisse has the world, the global income or wealth report each year. I just looked at 2018's report, which just came out. And, you know, it's, a, it's not as bad as last year, but still 1% of the world's population controls how much of the world wealth. 1% Bezos, Gates, controls how much of the world's wealth? 47, almost 48%. In 2017 it was 50%. So it's come down a little bit. But the poorest 50% only control 1% of the world's wealth. So if you're not in that top 1% that controls 48% of the world's wealth, then you face all these things too, to some extent. You have limitations on what you can do. You may not be in poverty in a technical sense, but you can't buy everything you want or everything those other people have. You're more prone to violence. You're more prone to all sorts of social pressures. I'm talking about me. I'm not in that top 1%. I'm susceptible to those things. And of course, insecurity. <coughs> insecurity. These are Bangladeshi mothers trying to get into India. It's not just Mr. Trump. The Indian government separates children from their mothers in these migrants who try to get into India. This came from Indian uh, newspapers. Bangladeshi woman weeps while holding children in no man's land between India and Bangladesh at the Sachi border crossing, which is 650 kilometers north of Kolkata. And they're put into cages, just like Trump's Mexican border immigrant children. Um, they're detained. The parents can be sent to prisons while their children are in shelter homes. But you can imagine how bad it is. That's a tremendous amount of stress. Worldwide, parent-child separations, 100,000 children. I, I can't remember which year this is. Um, this is 2018, 600% increase since 2017. Anyway, the point is people live under stress. People live under insecurity. I, I just can't imagine being separated from my parents when I was an infant or a child. I can't imagine what that would have done to me. Stress hormones for poor people are there before birth, after birth. They affect the kids. All these things have been measured in the mothers and in their kids. And we know that stress hormones, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and the hormones the adrenal produces, including cortisol and other stress hormones, are antagonists to growth hormones to insulin-like growth factor one, which is the primary hormone that promotes bone growth. The more stress you have, the less IGF-1 you have, and the less you grow. And this starts before birth. In Guatemala, some of my colleagues, Noel Solomons, who's been working in Guatemala for a long time, uh, has shown stunting at birth in these insecure, low-income, especially Maya populations. Professor Sub Ramanian, who's at Harvard University, has published several papers to rethink policy perspectives on childhood stunting. It is not going to be an issue of nutrient supplementation or giving people a toilet. Those things, everybody deserves good food and good you know, latrines and toilets. But you have to look at structural and multifactorial strategies upstream. What are the governments doing? What are the people with money? What do Bezos and Gates and Tata and all those people with all the money and the power really doing? Gates Foundation is doing a lot. Okay, that's good. They've made some impacts, especially their interest is technology and health. They've made some real impacts there. Nothing on stunting. So, 
what Subramanian and colleagues say, they look at the determinants of health, and while most of us focus on individual behaviors in this target, that's what the interventions, if the mothers would only feed their kids better, you know, make them use the toilet rather than the than just outside, or um, dress them better, make them go to school. No, it's social determinants of that context and then the societal determinants of that context. So really, I, I haven't redesigned the slide, it should be, the red should be this area out here. Interventions must be upstream. We have to change the behavior of the people in power, not the people who are suffering. That's what happened in the rich countries. The people in power changed. The Netherlands, or the Dutch, in the year 1900, were the shortest people in Europe. After World War II, the Netherlands, as a sort of reborn country, decided to change things and to tax people so that there was the most equality of income in Europe and provide social programs Back in the 1950s, it still don't exist in the United States or the UK today. Oh, guess what? They're the tallest people in the world. I'm talking about ethnic Dutch citizens, not the Indonesians and the Turks, who are not considered Dutch and don't get those benefits. But the Dutch themselves went from the shortest people in Europe, I'm talking about men who were, you know, 160 centimeters tall or 159 centimeters tall to 184 centimeters in 100 years. That's not genetics. That's not nutrition intervention. Although everybody eats better when everybody's more equal. I know I'm a little bit out of time. These are just travel log photographs of Sikkim, the market in Gezing. There was food everywhere. I'm not saying everybody gets all they, 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 they need to eat. There are some kids, I'm going to show you in a moment, who don't get enough to eat. But there's food everywhere. These are mostly um, women and kids who come with their household garden surplus to sell. Surplus. Okay? So they're just in the market square. And then there's all these shops all around and then down side streets. Here's just one shop owner. Clearly he's not starving. Uh, I don't know what sort of junk he sells, but you know, there's plenty of junk to buy and there's plenty of good food to buy. People eat a lot of fish. Comes, you know, there's not that much fish in Sikkim. It's a mountainous area, but it comes up from the coast. Chickens. From my perspective, it was cheap. For local people, it was probably, you know, a significant part of their income, but it was not that costly. The five days we stayed with a family in Sikkim, at what they call a homestay, which is like a family bed and breakfast, eating in the family's kitchen, and the food cost the equivalent of, uh, for three people, cost the five days, cost the equivalent of about 40 pounds. Is what they charge us. And they're making a profit on that. This is the wife, Tashi. She's actually um, the, the child of Tibetan immigrants who were forced out because of the China issues in Tibet. But she was born in Sikkim, making amazingly delicious food. Uh, this is not her son because secondary schools for specialist sort of educations are not equally spread across the country. There's, you know, there's, there's different schools in different places. Her son is at an IT secondary school about an hour and a half away, but it's too difficult to go back and forth. And these boys come from that village or town and are living with them and they partly pay their keep by you know, helping around the house. So there's a lot of this interchange of, of adolescence. And another time we'll talk about how adolescence is the final sort of adjusting of heights through community effects and social networks. So there's something to be studied there. But we, did, we didn't have time to really study it. Actually, there were four young people living with this family. They're a fairly well-to-do family and socially very important. They're also limbu. The husband is limbu. And he and his brothers, his father was like a limbu leader. And his brothers are like 
community leaders today. And here he is. He goes by the name of uh, Ganesh. And uh, he is a weightlifting and arm wrestling champion. And that is the National Arm Wrestling Championships for 2018. He got, oh, actually, he was a referee. Now he's an instructor and referee and uh, has high status. He gifted me that little hat he wears that I'm wearing at home now. I should have brought it with me to wear during the talk. It's amazingly warm. On cold days, you put that little hat on. And it, when I first put it on, people said, oh, it's too small. I said, no, that's what it's supposed to look like. And, uh, and Ganesh, you know, is, is not a, a tall man. Of course, he can tear me apart in two seconds also. He has a, a gymnasium, a weightlifting gymnasium in his home. This is a, a, a that's, I'm not sure which language uh, that is, but that's a, that's a regular language today and it's kind of um, um, stone carving. This, this was limbu. The reason I purposely put it in here because the Limbu language was destroyed by the Indians coming up from the south and by colonial powers. You know, you weren't nobody taught Limbu language, nobody uh, wrote in Limbu language. It was totally lost until three people—a woman and two men—and this is one of the men—helped revive the language. This man has written several dictionaries. So um, I think Hindi limbu, English limbu, maybe even German limbu. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, he's nearly blind now. But uh, we visited him. Uh, Binu took us to the man's home, and we had a little lime drink and uh, had a little conversation about limbu language and the good or bad old days. So we visited monasteries as well. That's Tashi the woman from the homestay at one of the monasteries. They're very impressive, of course. The uh, priests sit at these tables inside when they're doing their prayer and everything like that. But of course, if you want more priests, more monks, you need to educate them and bring them up. They bring in kids. It's kind of an honor to donate one of your kids to the monastery. But it's, again, child separation from a family. and. We were walking around, Michael Hermanusen and Christian Scheffler and I, and we were looking at these kids, and they seemed a little listless. They seemed bored. And they seemed a little sad compared to the other kids we saw. And um, we started looking around and comparing the monk in training kids with others. We saw their Spartan eating areas. We, we, we didn't see them actually eating. I mean, I, they probably get enough food. I don't think they're starved by, or, or, or malnourished in any sense. But this was a photograph Michael took. This is Christian Scheffler, who's 164 centimeters high. Now, this is, a, this is an anecdote. This is not research, right? This is an Indian family from the south, tourists, wealthy tourists fancy car, all like that, and their seven-year-old daughter, who is exactly on the World Health Organization median for height for age for a girl seven years old. So zero height standard deviations, right on the median, 121 centimeters. These boys, I wasn't with Michael and Christiane this day, but they, this boy said he was 10 years old, and using Christiane as the measuring stick, He's only 121 centimeters as well, just like the girl, but he's two years older. So he's minus 2.6 standard deviations. That makes him stunted. But we don't think that they're starving. We, they have reasonable living conditions, but they are socially isolated from their families and under a fairly strict religious regime for learning and training. We were told it's impossible to do a growth study with the monk, with the monkettes, or the, monk, the little monks. That we just wouldn't, that we asked our hosts, Ganesh and Tashi, uh, at, at the homestay, and they said, no, no, that wouldn't be possible. We don't know, but 
they, they seemed offended. These are uh, students at the school where Ganesh is the school director, the head teacher. He has many different <laughs> jobs, but he is also a teacher, and there's a the quote by Nelson Mandela, education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world. These kids were all short, but some were especially short. And Ganesh explained to us that a lot of these kids I don't know what they said, but a lot of these kids come from families that were forced out of the sort of West Bengal area in the 1980s because of tremendous civil unrest, almost civil war between different groups. And they fled up into the mountains. They are, they have, they, they a lot of the, the, the shorter girls there, the two shorter girls, their families, they're, they're like, the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of these people who fled, but they, they're not permanently settled. They live on some old aristocrat's estate, and they're like indentured servants. They have to do work on the estate for the right to live there. There is a lot of violence in that community. There's a lot of alcoholism. I didn't think alcohol was such a problem, but apparently across India, alcoholism is a very big problem. There were multiple, multiple shops to buy alcohol in that gazing marketplace area, and multiple places to drink um, alcohol. So it, it is a big problem. And these girls come to school unfed in the morning, and their clothes are, have holes and uh, are tattered. Um, my point is that these kids that are suffering the most probably are malnourished in addition to all the insecurity and emotional stresses, and they are the shortest. There are feeding programs. I just found this bag lying on the street, not for sale, supplementary nutrition program of the Indian government. So there is some you know, giving of food to some of these poorest kids, but most of the kids are like these girls at the school where the karate championships were. They get school lunch, all the schools get school lunch, so there's very poor kids from the parents who are like serfs um, come to school hungry, the school gives them a lunch and sometimes something when they first arrive as well. Um, there's no problem, you know, nutritionally here. I would have eaten, gladly eaten the lunch they were getting. These are older girls going to a different school. These are all state schools. These are not private schools, they just wear the uniforms the jumpers and everything. And you can see they're not wasting away. These are Binu Dorji's data from his PhD study. Okay, this is height and standard deviations. Anything below this red line is stunted by World Health Organization uh, standards. So a little less than half the kids are stunted. And this is their body mass index, you know, height, a weight divided by height squared, weight in kilograms divided by height squared, and it's, it's a, I, I hate the BMI for various reasons, but it does give you some idea of a height for weight relationship. And you see absolutely no statistical or biological association between their BMI status, as they're getting heavier and heavier for their height, and their height status. The heaviest ones are some tall and some stunted, and the short, the, the, the thinnest ones, some are not the tallest, but tall, and some are stunted. That's girls, and similar for boys. There's no statistical relationship here. And you couldn't predict from BMI what their height would be. But you could, really, because you have their height. Uh, we've done similar research. This is too busy, but it's the same thing from Guatemala and from Indonesia. These are Maya. Very, very short. Look at all of them. This is minus two here. Most are stunted, but no relationship with the sum of the triceps and subscapular skin folds, which are getting a little bit closer to nutritional status, fatness. There's no relationship with fatness. That's for the very poor Maya, for low SES non-Maya in Guatemala, <coughs> And these are all kids that were in a study that I was part of from near Guatemala City. These are not the most rural kids who are even shorter. 
And then these are the rich kids. And look, that's minus two, right along there. Even rich kids from the wealthiest families in the country, chauffeurs drive them to school. They're stunted. Guatemala has one of the highest rates of stunting, 17%, for the upper quintile of income, the upper 20%. They're still stunted. Why? In it, simply insecurity. The rich suffer because everybody in Guatemala suffers. They've had civil war going on officially from 1960 to 1996. It's still going on, it's just not official. The government right now has just, essentially, the government itself has had a coup. They've thrown out the United Nations inspectors. They've thrown out all the legal people who are looking at past you know, war crimes. They have uh, taken over the government. The post office has been closed. Um, and kidnappings just keep going up. The rich just keep going up and up and up. So the rich live under these tremendous stresses of instability in their government. Plenty of food, but the rich are short. Uh, that's Japanese. It's all a matter of belief. When the lower social strata start to believe in dominance, that they can get bigger, they start to grow, just like the meerkats. When the upper social stratus start to get nimited, start to get intimidated by the lower social classes, they grow as well. And that's what we think has explained this increase in size of everybody in the last hundred years with revolutions, fraternité, uh, liber liberté, égalité, fraternité. Okay? That's been spreading around the world. And people have been getting bigger. But we're in a period of a kind of return to the old ways, Trumpism and other isms across Europe, that may be throwing us back into a kind of um, global community where people will get shorter again. That's one of my predictions. In the United States, that has actually happened. African-American women have actually gotten shorter on average since the 1960s. Okay, I'll stop there.